When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Conspiranormal. Welcome to Conspiranormal, everybody. We are back, and uh, Serfio is with me remotely. Continuing with the quarantine series of Conspiranormal episodes. Yes, yes, and we have a special guest on the line, and that is someone that uh, we had on a couple of years ago that we talked about, uh, I believe about the Knights of Malta. Was that, yeah. I think that's what we talked about? Yeah. Yes, 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 that was correct. And we've got uh, Steven Snyder, who also goes by the, I guess, the Nom de Guerre or Nom de Plume uh, recluse. Welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. Well, thanks for having me back, guys. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for, thanks for coming back. Um, so you have a new book that uh, is, is it out yet or is it still to come out? Uh, it's out now both uh, in the digital uh, version and um, physical copy on Amazon. Okay. Okay. And it is called Strange Tales of the Parapolitical. And that- this, uh, this is, this is, um, a great book. Uh, it, it's it's like a really a collection of essays, but the essays really kind of co- cross pollinate each other. And basically, it's a this kind of like deep dive exploration from the end of World War II on about the right wing and private military companies, all of stuff that we're going to get into. But recluse, I kind of wanted to get your take on what you mean by parapolitical. Well, that's uh, actually that's a good point. Um, I was uh, just discussing this with my research assistant uh, literally just yesterday. Um, it was a kind of a point that he wanted to get into in the, the next podcast, and I'm dealing with him in about two weeks. But, you know, essentially, does kind of distinguish parapolitics from conspiracy theories. I mean, you go back to kind of the archetypal, you know, con- uh, parapolitical researchers like Peter Dale Scott or Jeffrey Bale or somebody like that. But, I mean, essentially, it's an attempt to investigate i guess what we would now refer to as deep politics but i mean from an actually scholarly perspective with lots of footnotes citation and even you know to some extent you know something that i'm trying to get into now um actual research that goes into personal archives and that type of thing and even interviews with the subjects whatnot i mean this is you know typically a lot different than you know, like behold, behold a pale horse or something like that, where I mean, the uh, the citations are few and far between, and you're mostly just, you know, throwing out other conspiracy books. You know, I try to look to legitimate, legitimate scholarly sources, um, you know, for my uh, citations and that type of thing. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely, I would say, a higher grade of research than what you would normally get with a lot of 
uh, conspiratorial research in this regard. Okay. And what's kind of like, what was the purpose of writing this book? What kind of like led you to start to write this particular book? Well, it was actually pitched to me by uh, Frank Zero, my co-host on the farm. Um, he had actually sent me the uh, uh, the ideal for it while I was uh, on my honeymoon in Washington, D.C., um, kind of amidst the uh, the Scottish Rite uh, was it, uh, headquarters in D.C. and uh, the International oh. Spy Museum. But, um, yeah, he basically wanted to do something that was centered around uh, – you know how trauma is used to manipulate society essentially um that was i think a early title for the book trauma-based society or something to that effect uh and specifically kind of looking at it through the prism of uh naomi naomi klein's concept of the shock doctrine um which she you know has essentially tried to argue was a combination of techniques that had been invented by mk ultra and specifically um the psychic driving experiments of ewan cameron and fused with chicago style economics of milton friedman and this had kind of provided a potent blend to reorient societies the first in her you know perception the first fully formed uh, rollout of it if you will was in chile in 1973 when they had the coup d'etat that brought uh, pinochet to power and uh from there there was an attempt to essentially re radically reorient society in the aftermath of just this tremendous trauma that they had undergone with the military coup and that type of thing um you know and that was a very fascinating concept to me and uh you know i started to look around at just you know other instances of this um of course since already you know with chile on the mind i mean you kind of go to at least you know i do anyway to uh colonia dignidad and i thought that, sure. that would be you know kind of a compelling way to emphasize you know another aspect of how trauma had been employed in chile and then from there kind of looking at some of the uh the things that the Mellon family have been into and also the private military industry so you start with the the Mellon family um, and their influence and kind of like their involvement in things like the Profumo affair and also some other kind of like skullduggery like that, kind of like a honeypot rings and all this kind of stuff. So kind of go into that because uh, the Mellon family, um, I know that our good friend, Dr. Future, uh, who you spoke to last time uh, on the show, he uh, has kind of, gone down the same similar road with the Mellon family and how like influential they are in like these really like radically right wing circles. Yeah, no, they're, uh, they're quite fascinating. Um, obviously, you know, they don't get a lot of the press that some of the other storied American dynasties like the Rockefeller and Morgan families and the Rothschilds and that type of thing get, which is a real pity. Um, is, you know, I would probably argue at this point in time they maintain much more influence than uh, the Morgan family and most likely the Rockefeller family as well. Um, but they, of course, had their origins in Pittsburgh. Um, the patriarch was Judge Thomas Mellon, who had set up the, uh, the Mellon Bank towards the end of the Civil War. Uh, and by 1900, it had become the largest financial institution outside of uh, outside of New York, and that had really provided a stepping stone for the family to branch out into a host of other industries. Um, probably the other big one was Gulf Oil, which got them, you know, uh, into the petroleum industry just as it was really starting to blow up in the early 20th century. Um, 
and certainly the most famous Mellon from this era would have been Andrew Mellon, uh, the long-serving Secretary of Treasury. He was there from, I believe, when Harding went in in 1920 up to 1932 when Hoover departed. So he oversaw the Roaring Twenties and uh, the stock market crash of 1929. Obviously, there's uh, there's a lot of dispute. There has been for years among economists and so forth as to how much blame um, or credit he deserves for these two events. Um but uh, another significant factor would happen uh, about a decade later, and that would be the onset of the Second World War. And also, um, you know, the first attempt to really uh, create a coordinated central intelligence group for the United States. Uh, this was, of course, the Office of Strategic Services, and um, a lot of elite families were major parts of this, and the Mellons were no exception. Uh, quite a few of the both direct family members and their in-laws had ended up serving in the OSS. And um, two of the guys who we specifically look at uh, in this essay, Richard Mellon Scafey, his father had been an OSS guy, um, William Mellon Hitchcock. I'm not sure. I don't actually think that his dad had been in the OSS, but certainly um, he had ended up rubbing some uh, elbows eventually with several other uh, in-laws who had. So certainly the, uh, the intelligence ties that the family had possessed really from the beginning of the modern American intelligence community were substantial. And uh, it seems like this relationship has continued well into the 21st century. So what, what is their involvement in things like the Profumo affair? Well, that plays into uh, William Mellon, or uh, yes, William Mellon Hitchcock, uh, or Mr. Billy as the help uh, referred to him as. Um, he's just, you know, a really fascinating figure, really just for all the stuff that he got involved in yeah. in uh, the 1960s. But um with Profumo, you know, I mean, he was living uh, in the UK, in London, uh, with a private detective called Thomas Corbally, who's uh, also really one of the true enigmas of the 20th century. But these guys were, you know, sharing a flat together, throwing orgies out of it. They got to know uh, a society osteopath called Stephen Ward, who uh, was really the guy who was running um, this upscale ring that provided uh, women for these VIPs, these aristocrats, and so on and so forth. Uh, he ran into a little trouble when uh, one of the girls that he was uh, running, Christine Keeler, had had an affair with um, a uh, Russian, or today at this point in time, a Soviet uh, naval attache who was actually a member of the GRU, the principal Soviet military intelligence service, which had been uh, deliberate. Uh, unfortunately, afterwards, she started having an affair with John Perfumo, the um, at the time, I believe it was the Secretary for Defense or something to that effect in the UK, very prominent cabinet official. And uh, there's been a lot of dispute by the historians whether this was intended or not. But uh, it did create some significant issues for the government of Harold Macmillan down the road. And that was where Mr. Billy stepped in along with Corbally. They essentially seemed like they were tapped by David Bruce, who was another uh, Mellon family in-law, to look into this whole fiasco to see what exactly was going on with Ward. Of course, he had become very close to this uh, the Soviet GRU guy. Um, they had, the British, I should say, were effectively using him as a back channel during uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis to communicate with the Soviet Union. So there was a lot of just crazy stuff going on with Ward. And, um, you know, this was very concerning to the Americans for a lot of reasons. Uh, least of all, though, probably because there is uh, some question of his loyalties and 
probably more significantly whether or not this would trace back to uh, the pedophile rings in the UK that really were exposed with Jimmy Savile of late. Uh, certainly there were elements of this kind of hovering in the background of uh, Ward's ring. I mean, most of the girls that he used were close to legal age, uh, you know, usually 16, 17, 18. But uh, he did certainly deliberately recruit women uh, I should say, really say girls at that point kind of like the uh, jeffrey epstein of his time huh? yeah yeah well i mean he you know also i mean the girls that he recruited specifically were ones that were supposed to look even younger so i mean you know you're talking women that are girls that were 17 18 who you know could pass for being 14 or 15 for uh you know these lords and so forth they were being used to service <laughs> wow so things like that really show uh i guess gave people a glimpse into this uh, kind of public-private partnership that goes back to the beginning of our modern intelligence apparatus that you show where a lot of these elite families and people from this upper class are really from the get-go along with private corporations and uh, early forms of private intelligence companies in the very beginning of especially the the Anglo uh, American intelligence establishment. Like you, you really show that from the, from the start, it's been this revolving door. Oh yeah. I mean, absolutely. And um, you know, that's really something I'm going to get into even more with the next book I'm working on, which um, is actually kind of tracking the, the history of these sex rings with uh, you know, that eventually showed up with Epstein. But yeah, I mean, really uh, the U S intelligence community really grew out of these, these kind of interwar gentlemen clubs network, uh, the Travelers Club, the End of the World Club. Um, there was one in New York City that was very exclusive that was simply known as The Room. And it was just, you know, this kind of cabal, of these very prominent Eastern establishment figures on the one hand with their counterparts in the UK, some British spooks mixed in and so on and so forth. And this was the, the network really that um, Sir William Stevenson, who was essentially the guy who really created our you know our intelligence community if you really want to get down to it this is what he tapped into when he was uh you know helping donovan set up the office of strategic services so yeah i mean it just really from the get-go this kind of emerged out of a private you know network really of gentlemen's clubs and old boy networks and so on and so forth it went in directly into the government during the second world war and then aspects of it in the aftermath kind of continued both in a public and private nature, you know, depending upon what was more expedient. So in that aftermath of the Second World War, um, it the Second World War itself really, you know, catapults these agencies to prominence in, in our countries. But then also after the Second World War, this influx of, um, you know, former nazis and fascists really has a tremendous impact in shaping the cold war and you really explore that and i mean we've all heard of like you know project paperclip and the nazis in the rocket program of course we had and even you know the the mythos of nazis hiding out in south america but i think like until you really see all these people and their relationships put together and put on paper like you've done in what you call the black orchestra and the special operations mafia. I mean, it really, it's, it's not like some, you know, isolated couple guys here and there. Like we had this very close relationship. 
to all these guys and so many of these people survived and prospered and did terrible things around the whole world and shaped the whole cold war. And you, you really get to the bottom of that. Uh, yeah, well that was, um, I think that was the first thing my wife essentially said to me when she finished reading, um, that Colonia Dignidad essay was something to the effect of like, wow, I really can't believe how many Nazis we used after the second world war (laughs) or something like that. But, um, yeah, yeah, no, that was really kind of the, what I was, uh, pushing for just, yeah, I mean, to really just, you know, definitively illustrate just how extensive all of this was. And of course, you know, I mean, we're told the, you know, the kind of public consumption stuff with paperclip, and it was mostly just these, um, you know, these scientists and what have you that we were using. But I mean, when you really look at the, uh, the stay behind armies that were set up in the aftermath, Gladio and that type of thing, I mean, you know, it wasn't just scientists. I mean, there were just really hardened, you know, Nazi SS men, their equivalent in Italy, uh, the Quislings and so forth from Eastern Europe, the collaborators from France, all of these guys were just, you know, employed extensively in these stay behind armies, uh, which, you know, had just, I think, disastrous results for Western Europe throughout the Cold War on many number of levels. What is uh, what you call the, the Black Orchestra? Well, I mean, it was essentially this network uh you know, this, uh, I guess originally it began really as an SS underground, if you will, uh, with a central figure uh, being Otto Scorzini, you know, Hitler's favorite commando, Scarface, the guy who had rescued Mussolini with a detachment of commandos using hand gliders, uh, that type of thing. But I mean, in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, initially, this was geared more to just self-preservation, really. I mean, these guys were you know, wanted for war crimes by the Soviets and the U.S., the British. Um, they were just really trying to get out of Dodge and hide out. But, I mean, certainly you had these resources, this money, and this network that spread out. And um, as the years went on, it wasn't just former Nazis. Um, of course, after the uh, the rebellion of the secret army organization in France against de Gaulle, you had all of these OAS veterans who went into the ranks uh, beginning in the early 60s, by the middle of the 60s. 60s to the late 60s, you started having all of these Italian neo-fascists that were going into the ranks. Uh, of course, you had all the aid from Franco, Spain, and so forth. Um, and even to some extent, uh, you know, especially reactionary Catholic orders. Um, of course, the Knights of Malta, which we've already talked about. Opus Dei was another one. But I mean, by the uh, early 70s, it really had become a full-blown orchestra with an international reach, not just in Europe, but spread across South America, the Middle East, and it had these, you know, these just uh, large, you know, spanning influences that had come into it over the years from the French, from the Nazis, from the Italians, and, um, you know, strangely... uh, even the kind of mystical beliefs that filtered into it too, from individuals like Julius Avoli and what have you. Um, so yeah, it was um, it was quite a big deal, you know, really throughout the seventies, eighties, uh, until some of these guys finally started to die off. But uh, the legacy is uh, certainly still with us, for better or worse. Yeah, that underbelly of the Cold War and the all the friends we made and temporary friends we made during it. I don't think I mean many people don't don't really come to terms with that. But, you know, you really show the connections between you got the characters, you've got the organizations and think tanks, and then you have the uh, intelligence agencies and private intelligence agencies and mercenaries. And you kind of, 
you know, you, you show all these webs between them. And I think I've never really seen it all put together like that. I think you do a really good job and I really recommend checking out the book. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say that to, before we kind of get into that, cause that's, that's, that is a very important part of this, probably like the most important part of this, but let's talk a little bit about, let's talk about Colonia Dignidad and the weird connections that, that come around Colonia Dignidad and, um, and also kind of like the importance of the Chilean coup of 1973 and what that really means to something like Operation Gladio and how this was almost like a kind of a culmination of, and almost like a goal was reached with the Chilean coup in a way by these groups. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, certainly it was one of just the, the most effective uh, coup d'etat that these groups and the U S had, you know, ever sponsored. Um, and I mean, one of the things that was especially striking to me, you know, going not just through, you know, all the things that were happening in Chile at this time, but you know, the other, the Southern cone countries, Argentina, Paraguay, that also had these, you know, strong fascist networks present in them. But um, with Chile, it was just the coup. The biggest thing about it was just how bloodless it really was. Um, you know, you look compare. You know, conversely, at say Argentina. Um, you know, you had years where the death squads there would kill. You know, upwards to ten thousand people or something like that. I mean, I think the total number of people killed during um, the so-called Dirty War there was. I was probably, you know, between 30 and 50,000 people or something to that effect. Um, whereas Chile, I mean, Pinochet was in power for uh, roughly 20 years or so. He still, you know, effectively headed the armed forces, I believe, until the mid to late 90s. But um, in that entire time, there were only roughly, you know, some 3,000 or so political prisoners that were murdered under his regime. And, you know, that's tragic. I'm not trying to dismiss that in any way, shape or form. But sure. um, certainly the death toll was not anywhere near what you saw in Argentina and some of the neighboring countries. And uh, I just think a lot of that had to do with just how scientific in a sense it was or methodical if you will um of course the coup was so abrupt and sudden it was able to completely decapitate the uh Alindian forces rather thoroughly and then you had kind of the mass almost psychodrama in the immediate aftermath with you know people being relocated to the national football stadium and just all of the weird stuff that was going on there and then the uh i guess kind of tour around the country where they rounded up uh dissidents and killed them and um, but then from there, you know, it just really, it dies down. It was such a thorough uh, decapitation of the current government uh, and just the absolute trauma and the really the, uh, the propaganda that they were able to generate from it was so thorough. It just numbed the populace. And then, you know, you kind of reinforce this with places like Colonia Dignidad, these um, just shadowy, sinister, you know, uh, containment or um compounds that you could disappear people to so i mean it's really just fascinating in that sense how it was managed like that and certainly there were a lot of different influences that were at play there um you had of course all of the uh the french theorists the Liguer revolutionary guys uh, of course the french military officers who had uh, developed this ideology in argent uh the algerian war had actually trained the chilean military forces you had these you know, Italian neo-fascists who brought the strategy of tension doctrine, which had all played into Gladio and what have you. Um, so, yes, I mean, it really was accumulation of all this and then just methods that um, 
the U.S. intelligence community had already, it's, you know, used in uh, Indonesia, kind of another, an early coup in that kind of mold as well. Um, you know, it oh, really... Yeah. Indonesia was horrible. Like yeah. a million people were killed. And that was, yeah, I mean, that, like I said, that was kind of the thing. You sort of look at what went on with um, Soroto or something in Indonesia. I mean, yeah, it's, uh, I think it was actually like a half a million. But yeah, it was still a lot of bloody people that were killed there um, yeah. compared to what Pinochet was able to manage in Chile. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was just really, you know, it's certainly a fascinating example of this and just how brutally efficient it was ultimately. Yeah, in Argentina, the Dirty War was much more over like an extended period of time. I believe like about six years, I think, if yeah. that serves correctly. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that was kind of another thing. I mean, you had the, the coup, which ironically was launched on September 11th, 1973. And I think right. they, had, they had really consolidated control over most of the country before, um, you know, the year was even out. And there just wasn't, you know a major resistance that built up against what was going on there, like you saw in Argentina, which essentially prolonged the dirty war there for years. Well, uh, Schaefer, the, who was the cult leader that was the head of Colonia Dignidad, uh, he had a lot of strange connections as well. There was a lot of like, to think that a lot of this kind of like just this neo-Nazi and really, hardcore right-wing operation gladio network really had like kind of propped him up yeah i mean that definitely is what it seems like um i mean of course the colony had eventually became uh, a major uh, operational center for what became known as operation condor which was um uh it was essentially an arrangement that the various intelligence services in the southern cone had come to and um you know, effectively, if you were fighting a rebel group that fled from your country into another country, you could go out there and grab them, take them back, torture them, or, you know, you could rely on another neighboring friendly intelligence service to do it for you. Um, so it really became, uh, you know, a kind of um, transnational death squad, if you will. And uh, the colony was really a central hub for that. And I mean, you saw a lot of guys, some of these neo-fascist uh, terrorists and so forth who had been involved in, you know, Gladio and the strategy of tension in Italy. And they uh, had fled, you know, for various reasons, chiefly legal reasons, uh, during the early to mid seventies, they, many of them relocated to South America. They set up shop there. And I mean, they were kind of plugged into all this stuff that was going on with operation Condor. And, um, that kind of provided uh, a nexus too for it to become more ambitious after a time. Um, you know, they had the assassinations that they eventually, uh, tried in Italy, uh, which you know, failed ultimately. And then of course the famous one in embassy row in the United States and DC, uh, which was successful and, uh, was actually, Actually somewhat detrimental because of that but um you know so just there alone with the colony you had this just nexus of people plugged into this you know just kind of international terror network um and then of course there were the ties as well to Le Cercal, which uh you know are just thoroughly disturbing um I've already gone into this somewhat in my blog but um you know lawyers associated with Le Cercal had effectively been providing the colony with legal assistance during the 1980s when um, some of the outrages that were being committed there started to come to the attention of the international community. But um, in my research in this, I was able to figure out that uh, actually one of the founders of Le Cercal had been a very 
prominent supporter of the colony. And, um, you know, that's really significant in terms of uh, some of the uh, uh, extracurricular activities, shall we say, that Herr Schaefer was involved with, um, namely the sexual abuse of children, which uh, he was quite prolific at. Um, yes, and it was very tragic and very disgusting. And sadly, um, it was about par of the course with, with um, Le Cercau. Um Of course, if you've read any of my accounts of it on my blog, um, it's been linked quite extensively to uh, the Detroit affair in Belgium and just the whole, you know, rings of pedophiles that were exposed with that from this, you know, one particular serial killer. And also from many of the uh, the British members as well, um, the rings that were eventually exposed with Jimmy Savile. And then, of course, uh, you had William Casey, who was a prominent American backer of Le Cercau, and, of course, uh, all of his ties to the Franklin scandal in the United States. Um, so certainly a lot of times when, you know, uh, people ask me, is there some kind of coordinating body for these sex rings and what have you, I often point to Le Cercau. I mean, that's really, I think, the closest thing that we've been able to uncover is some kind of potential international body that was overseeing these different operations. I mean, you can certainly see the presence in Chile with uh, the colony in the United States with Franklin and then Jatro and, um, you know, the things with Savile in the UK. So Le Cercau, that uh, translates to the circle, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. So what were they? What was their primary? What was it? They were kind of like this. They were more of a French kind of like the, I guess you describe it in the book as the kind of right wing version of the Bilderbergers. Yes, essentially. Of course, they had actually begun as a, a bit of an offshoot of the Bilderberg group, um, essentially trying to help with uh, French and German reproachment in the aftermath of the Second World War. And um, yeah, in the early years, it was more of a French thing with a lot of involvement from uh, the Germans. But um, I think first and foremost, though, it was really uh, a reactionary Catholic group, pretty much every founding member had either been involved with um the knights of malta or opus day or in some cases both so um yeah there was definitely a very pronounced catholic characteristic to it and um i kind of think in that sense initially it was meant as a bit of a counterbalance to um the anglo-american protestant dominated bilderberg group you know la Cal was essentially meant to be more representative of Catholic continental Europe. Um, but certainly its characteristics did begin to change somewhat in the 1970s. And that was when you had a massive influx of, uh, of British Tories into the group, um, really personified by Lord Julian Amory. Uh, and that uh, domination has really continued up to the present day. I mean, I think every chairman of Le Cercal since uh, the early 80s has been uh, British, if I'm not mistaken. So you had a lot of these groups forming post-World War II, um, very anti-communist. But in 1965, there's a conference that you really stress, really came up with a, uh, an ideology for how to radically combat communism in ways that we would think you know, would be morally reprehensible or you know, totally outside of what um, you know the rules of warfare are supposed to be. So can you can you go into that? What this conference was and what what really developed from that? Oh yeah yeah yeah. Well it was um I can't remember. Uh, it was like the Prince of a I can't remember the name of the hotel off the top of my head. But um 
it was a two or three day conference that the Italian military had sponsored in part. And um, effectively, this was where the uh, the concept of the strategy of tension was developed, which would really uh, become kind of a modus operandi for many neo-fascist groups in Europe going into the late 60s and beyond. But essentially, it's argued that uh, in order to return fascism essentially to power, it would require acts of terrorism committed by both the left and the right. And this would eventually destabilize national governments to the point that there would be a call for a military coup d'etat. And this was seen as a favorable climate for fascism to return. Um, so this, to this end, uh, many of the participants on the one hand sought to infiltrate uh, the military and the security services so that there would be you know, ample fellow travelers when this alleged coup d'etat happened. And then on the other hand, to also heavily infiltrate left-wing organizations as well, because, you know, again, it was crucial that terrorism was coming from both the left and the right, but certainly, um, you know, they wanted to really play up the threat of communist terrorism. So, you know, a lot of times they would attempt to infiltrate uh, revolutionary leftist groups, and in some cases, they even just, you know, outright try to invent groups altogether if they couldn't, you know, find ones that were suitably militant enough. Um, so, yes, it was a very, you know, just horrific strategy, and it really underpined um, the so-called years of lead, uh, which gripped Italy in the 70s and 80s, um, you know, just a wave of terrorism that had had just a traumatic effect on the country during that time frame. And so the one of the main ideas, I guess, was that World War III had already effectively begun, but it would be asymmetrical and it would use what then the French called revolutionary warfare. Yes, that is correct. Le guerre revolutionnaire. Uh, that was a concept that they had really started to come up with um, during the French Indochina War. And basically, it was based off of the guerrilla warfare tactics of Mao Zedong combined with the, the French experiences in the Indochina War. And more or less, they concluded that the only way that they could win this you know, alleged Third World War against the communists is that they had to completely adopt the methods of the communists and become even more brutal than the communists. Um, so yeah, um, the first real attempt to play this out was in um, Algeria by the French, which I had alluded to before, and their attempt to you know, conquer populations rather than uh, strategic territories and that type of thing. Um, so yes, yes, a, a popular method of conquering the population um, was to abduct individuals, you know, from the streets of Algeria or whatever, uh, believed to be spies for the insurgency. Uh, they would be horrendously tortured for roughly 24 hours. Uh, this was the time frame in which it was believed that uh, whatever useful intelligence they had would uh, no longer be useful if they had passed that time frame. So, yeah, they would experience things like the water pipe method, which uh, we now know as waterboarding. And then after the 24 hours had passed, um, they would commit suicide. And this was managed by flying them out uh, into the Mediterranean in a helicopter and throwing them into the sea. Uh, the thinking being that, uh, you know, then the mangled bodies would wash up in shore and this would have a further devastating impact on the populace and their loved ones. Um, that was how they were going to uh, conquer the population. And some of these are earlier, are, are older Gladio ideas too, because that stay, stay behind idea uh, being with, you know, within, but 
Um, also, the threats being from, you know, Gladio was officially, um, if, you know, the Soviet Union invades Western Europe, then these will be like these these guerrilla operations um, to work against it. But then also they were focused on the internal threat, which is actually the internal politics. So they effectively became like domestic terrorist organizations in these countries as well against uh, against the left wing or progressive governments. Well, I mean, even against just, you know, the, you know, establishments essentially of many of the continental, yeah, yeah. you know, European uh, countries, because, I mean, again, you know, the, the Gladio stuff was pretty much totally devised by the U.S. and U.K., and it had been based upon um, Operation Jedburg, which was um, an operation that was run by the Office of Strategic Services and the Special Operations Executive during the Second World War. And these were basically the stay-behind networks of the time that were deployed in France and so on and so forth to wage a guerrilla war against the Nazis uh, when the Allied invasion began. So, you know, basically they're being hit in the front by an actual army, and then they're being hit in the rear by these guerrilla groups, you know, going around assassinating people and blowing yeah. up armaments and it's that like type a of thing. Fifth, fifth column kind of thing. Yes, 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 exactly. But, um, you know, and that was the theory, you know, we would set this up in the event that the Soviet Union had an invasion. But it just so happens, you know, all of these, you know, Nazis and mafia figures that we recruited into these stay behind networks were, you know, perfect to also destabilize France and Italy and any other Western European, quote unquote, ally uh, that threatened to become too independent of the consensus right. of the Anglo-American community. And then, on the other hand, you had a, something called Operation Bloodstone, which was for behind the Iron Curtain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, a lot of these guys, um, especially a lot of the, you know, the Quislings, uh, the Ukrainians and all these other Eastern European groups that were, uh, you know, evacuated after the uh, the communists had defeated the national governments in Eastern Europe and so on and so forth. Uh, so these guys were then recruited by the U.S. and the U.K. to be sent back into their, you know, their home countries so that they could form some kind of, uh, you know, stay behind network there that they could use to gradually to stabilize the Soviet forces and then eventually retake the countries or at least that was the theory but there's just I mean for one thing the guy um, the British had overseeing all this was Kim Philby who was of course the notorious Soviet double agent um, and I, the more I've looked at this a lot of this research has gone into the Epstein book I'm pretty convinced the British were firmly aware that he was a double agent by this point in time and then on top of that I mean all of these expat groups uh, you know, the Ukrainians, the Albanians, uh, the Latvians, and so on and so forth, they were all firmly infiltrated by Soviet intelligence. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think in some senses, you know, they had initially thought there might have been a good ideal to this, but um, after realizing whatever guys you could have sent in there were just totally riddled by communists, and we've still got these groups on the payroll, and they're working with our own security services, well... Let's just send them off into Eastern Europe. Um, you know, the guys who are already working with the Soviets will be, you know, reunited with their employers and those who aren't will be killed. And, um, you know, that'll, you know, wash our hands of this problem, so to speak. So, um, right. yeah, I mean, it was really brutal in a lot of senses. But, yeah, I do. I think that it kind of almost became a convenient way to basically retire um, assets of a dubious loyalty, essentially. So. Really, they have a lot of adventurism, of course, from the Second World War on. Um, but you talk about how 
post-Watergate, America had such a gutting of uh, our intelligence agencies of people who might have been involved in all this stuff with, with these types of characters beforehand. And that that really ramping up the, the private uh, side of this and also just having all these these veteran intelligence people that didn't have jobs anymore kind of made them all uh, create like a mass exodus into this underground world. And then of course we get the heating up of the cold war in the eighties. And this was kind of like the prime time for all that. Yeah. It was really the catalyst uh, when Reagan, you know, came to power and really Bill Casey uh, became the director of the CIA. Of course. I mean, he was an OSS veteran. I mean, he had been there, you know, at the beginning of this kind of public private merger and he really wanted to get, you know, things back to the good old days uh, when the, you know, the OSS and later the CIA could just kind of carry out these covert operations with impunity. Um, And, you know, they had always used a certain amount of, um, you know, off the book assets for plausible deniability and so forth. But I mean, at least some of this was kept under, you know, I mean, you actually had actual CIA officers working with these guys and that type of thing. Whereas, yeah, I mean, after the, uh, the Watergate scandal and the stuff that came out with MK ultra and what have you, it just pushed this kind of stuff further and further into, um, you know, what I, and a lot of other researchers like to refer to as the deep private, uh, is just a way, you know, of further increasing the plausible deniability and, um, you know, putting more and more degrees of legal separation as well between you and the operations. And what were some of those those things in the 80s that occurred? I mean, we're really, most people are pretty familiar with what happened in Central America, but I mean, what, what kind of operations in particular did this lead to? Well, in the case of like Nicaragua, for instance, um, we actually used um, a British private military company, uh, Kini Mini Services, to actually carry out um, a lot of the training and so forth of the troops there. And of course, there's also long been allegations uh, that they did more than train, that they were actually being used to prop up some of these uh, quote unquote freedom fighters as well. Um, and that was really kind of, you know, par of the course with the uh, how the British had done this type of thing for years. They were really the uh, the architects of the modern private military industry. But, um, you know, besides Keeney Meeny, I mean, Wackenhut was another one that we were using for intelligence purposes and what have you there. Um, Wackenhut, of course, the infamous private detective agency has been you know i mean it does a host of different stuff i mean it has yeah. security guards for rest stops in florida it guard or it did for many years guard area 50 that's I don't the know if it's one t- that's the one that i believe ken thomas wrote about in the octopus um, yeah 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 and then castellero and all that yeah. yeah well they also have been you know involved in that whole um with the Indian reservation too. And um, yeah, the Cabazon Indian reservation. Yeah, 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 yeah. And just the arm, you know, the weapons trafficking that had been going on there and what have you. So, I mean, it definitely seems like, you know, you started to see more of these really corporate entities as well that were being brought in to handle this, you know, drug and arms trafficking and what have you. And, um, you know, this was stuff maybe in the past that they would have probably used off the book sources for, in general, because, I mean, obviously, you know, you don't want acknowledged CIA officers caught, you know, trying to sell cocaine or something like that. It's a little embarrassing. But, um, yeah, but now, I mean, essentially, you know, instead of just having like random, you know, ex-Green Berets that were recruited from Soldier of Fortune magazine or something like that, you've got like a formal 
corporate structure that's actually, you know, directing all of this. Um, I mean, really an, an entity in and of itself that uh, is well funded and is well organized, unlike what you would have seen in the 60s or 70s. So let's talk a little bit. I want to talk about these private military contractors. And I guess we really could start historically with the British East India Company because that really gives a template for what is going on now. But you could also, I guess, historically add in like something like the Paladin Group, which is direct. You know, you talk about Nazis. I mean, Otto Scorzani and the Paladin Group. But let's talk about a little bit kind of like this just kind of like historical precedents and kind of move into what's going on with these PMCs. Well, I mean, you could go back even further than the British East India Company to, um, you know, the mercenary companies that, you know, prevailed really uh, throughout the uh, the late Middle Ages going into kind of the Renaissance period and what have you. Of course, Machiavelli um, famously had the the treaty on something of whether you should use mercenaries or, you know, conscript soldiers and that type of thing. So, I mean, the use of mercenaries was really... Um, very common until um, the early 17th century, which was really when um, the Westphalian, I believe it would be considered state, began to emerge, the you know modern nation state, and that really tipped the balance of power towards national armies, um, at least within Europe itself. But uh, you know, as you kind of alluded to, you also had these large you know trade companies and what have you that began to spring up afterwards, and um, they were a great way for the European powers to exercise their influence. Uh, in the new world, in Asia, and that type of thing, but um, obviously without, you know, specifically committing their flag to it. So, I mean, you know, you had these mercenary armies that could carry out the objectives of the Dutch or the British or something like that without directly involving these nations, um, which became, you know, very useful in the scramble for India because, I mean, it certainly wasn't just the British who were trying to get in on the action. Uh, there were other powers at play, but um, it didn't break into a cold or into a world war, I should say, or kind of an early world war because, uh, you know, they were private armies basically duking it out and not uh, the official governments but um you know a lot of this stuff went away by the 19th century in no small part due to uh just the horrendous company rule that had uh, prevailed in india uh in theory that should have improved things though that's obviously debatable but um the use of mercenaries had become increasingly taboo and um you know really when we got into the early cold wars i alluded to it was really done in a you know, kind of an informal fashion. Uh, the CIA's always used mercenaries heavily, but, you know, you would use something like Soldier of Fortune magazine uh, to recruit these guys. And it was a very sure. just, you know, it was an informal network, uh, yeah. to put it mildly. Yeah. But the, the change really came with the British uh, in the mid-60s, and this is at the time, really in the aftermath of the Suez Crisis. You know, the empire is evaporating, the Americans are refusing to step in and help them. Um so they're driven out of Egypt. They had put a lot of their fleet and what have you in Yemen. Uh, that was a major port. I think it was in Adena or something like that. Uh, and now Nazar starts to move in there. He's pushing the British once again. Are they going to just be totally driven into the Mediterranean? Uh, you know, certainly that was on everybody's minds. Well, fortunately for the British, they had Julian Amory and his uh, merry band of Scotsmen, mostly uh, revolving around Clan Fraser of Lovett. Um, 
he came up with a rather, you know, brilliant ideal, at least in a sense, to preserve the British Empire. And that was basically to take these, you know, these SAS guys, use them as mercenaries for the uh, Yemen government, the royalist faction there, supply them with arms. And uh, kind of another major innovation was to get Saudi Arabia basically to pay for all of it. And now you had just you know, an operation totally going on there to preserve British influence that had absolutely no tie, direct tie, really, to the British government at all. Um, The guy that Amory got to oversee all of this was David Sterling, uh, Colonel David Sterling, who was one of the co-founders of the SAS. And um, it was extremely successful, uh, for better or worse. Uh, I mean, they were able to completely bog down Nazar's forces and I believe inflict something like 15,000 casualties on his army, which is tremendous for just, you know, the size of Egypt's army in that time frame. And it was probably just instrumental to them being destroyed by the Israelis in the seven year, or was it seven day war a couple of years later. But um, it was just brutal, you know, the guerrilla warfare that he plunged the nation into, and it just absolutely bled Nazar dry and really led to, uh, the decline of Egypt as an, uh, as an influence in that region of the world where it had been very significant in the 50s and 60s. It just really went into a decline that's never been reversed <laughs> beginning into the 70s. And um, so anyway, this was really successful. Uh, Sterling saw a great way to make money, so he founded what was known as WatchGuard International, which was the first, what's generally considered to be the first modern private military company. And this was actually the model that um, Scorzini had used when he had set up the Paladon Group. In fact, I believe he'd even listed oh. uh, WatchGuard International as being the um, the uh, British, uh, you know, division of it or something to that effect. And um, that's actually rather. It's kind of incredible because, I mean, Scorzini had been, you know, basically hired by Nazar to train his security forces, and he had brought in all of these Nazis and what have you there to help with that. And, um, you know, of course, had been opposed to the British in that region of the world, and then suddenly he's turning around and working with David Sterling. But um, that was about par of the course with Scarface. He loved to play uh, both sides against each other. Um but yeah, I mean, so Sterling sets up all of this and, um, you know, it suddenly kind of turned into a garden industry in the UK in the 70s uh, with Control List Limited, um, that spawned Keeney Meeny and some of these other firms. Sterling himself got back into the racket in the 1980s with KAS International. And this really became a significant way for the British to continue their influence in the world without, you know, really involving uh, the UK directly. And in many cases, without even having to pay for anything. And this just really reached, you know, a pinnacle in a sense uh, during the 90s after the Cold War ended in Africa, where, you know, you almost see these kind of mini East India companies being established. Of course, uh, the big player in all this was Tony Buckingham, who was a former uh, special boat service veteran. Uh, he, along with another uh, an SAS veteran called Simon Mann, who had also been in Sterling's Cass International, set up um, Executive Outcomes, the uh, infamous mercenary firm that had uh, inspired the Leonardo DiCaprio movie Blood Diamond. Uh, most of the troops in um, and uh, executive outcomes were South Africans uh, from the from the famous 32nd Battalion, but the owners were mostly British. And, you know, in addition to owning executive outcomes, Buckingham owned, um, I think it was Heritage Oil or something like that. He owned a bunch of diamond consortiums and just essentially lots of companies that were involved in uh, natural resources. 
And, um, you know, he would go into a country like Angola that had oil and um, different rebel factions that were at each other's throats after the Soviet uh, and U.S. had started to withdraw their, you know, influence from these particular regions of the world. He'd find one of the groups that he thought he could work with. He'd ask them to sell him uh, oil rights or something like that. They'd say, well, yeah, we'd love to do that, uh, you know, Tony. But um, unfortunately, we don't control that part of the country. That's, you know, the other rebel group that's got it. And Tony would say, that's not a big deal. You know, um, you know, you can just sign me the uh, mineral rights or the oil rights over and, uh, you know, I'll lend you the money and then you can turn around and hire my mercenaries. They'll go in and destroy the, your uh, rivals over there. And then, um, you know, we can all start sharing in the bounty of the oil money while, uh, you know, the rest of your country starves. And, uh, you know, I'll leave you some mercenaries to protect your interests, too, just because I'm a nice guy. So this was like a, just another form of neo neo-colonialism. Yes, essentially. Yeah. yeah, essentially, yeah. And I mean, you know, you can still see successors to the executive outcomes there to this day with um, Saracen and some of these other companies, which ironically Eric Prince eventually became involved with. So, um, yeah, uh, we definitely, I think, learned a couple of things from the British and the intern in that regard. Well, when you talk about how the a lot of these guys from South Africa, it was similar to uh, what happened in Germany and other repressive regimes once the regime falls... Um, all these guys just become mercenaries for hire, and so you have this this exodus of all these former elite uh, special operations types who just went all over Africa and all the ensuing chaos over these you know last uh, three four decades. Oh yeah, yeah, and I mean, well, especially with you know uh, the thirty second battalion, which was like I said, mainly where the executive outcome drew from the ranks of. Um, you know, I mean, these guys were pretty much like full-blown super soldiers um you know they were there was the during the the 80s uh, around 86 or so the cubans had sent a large military contingent to angola um to fight the south african forces that had been deployed there so the cubans had put together a large fighting force i think it was a couple of brigades along with their you know angolan um supporters and what have you it was almost twenty thousand troops i think they had mustered that they were going to use to try to drive the South Africans finally out of the country. And South Africa, all they sent to counter this force was the 32nd Battalion. It was only around, you know, like a thousand men or something like that. So, I mean, they were literally outnumbered almost 20 to 1 at some sections of the battle. And they just, you know, they annihilated the Cubans, basically. Uh, I think the Cubans tried to claim that it was a victory because um, the 32nd Battalion didn't manage to completely destroy their forces. Um, they might as well, because uh, I think this was the battle, too, where they had essentially sent prostitutes that were, um, you know, that had contracted AIDS to the Cuban soldiers and got them infected, too. So, um, yeah, I mean, Cuba actually had almost no cases of AIDS before that. And then all of the soldiers got infected in this battle. And they've never really even talked about it. From what I understand, it really decimated Cuba's uh, military. It's never really recovered from that. So, yeah, I mean, the 32nd Battalion essentially managed to do what the CIA and um, the U.S., you know, all the money we threw at Castro for years didn't manage to do, and that was destroy his military. Um, so, yeah, I mean, these guys were just, you know, as elite as elite could come. And, yeah, I mean, it's just like, well, what do you do when this regime collapses with these kinds of soldiers? Um, you know, you know, this just, you know, you've created kind of a monster, really, a Frankensteinian monster. And, uh, you know, there's almost no way to stop it in the aftermath. I mean, people are going to want these services. 
Yeah, I mean, you're basically saying that that same strategy attention was being applied all throughout Africa to gain resources for these conglomerates. Yeah, I mean, essentially in the, yeah, I mean, in the post-Cold War years, you know, I mean, it was definitely a bit of a struggle there. And um, and then, I mean, later on, of course, in Angola, you kind of see it playing out between the U.S. and the U.K., where, I mean, you know, we're backing one rebel faction, the British are backing another one. So, I mean, it really was almost a kind of neo-scramble for Africa, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. So, in this time period, you really witness the uh, the growth of, of these... Uh, private military contractors and leading up to the global war on terror, which then, especially for the United States, they they play a pivotal role in it. And that is what has set the standard for the role that they have now and their increasing power. So can you kind of give a background to how how we got to that and what, what the global war on terror did for these private companies and how they really are seem like seems like you're saying that they have the inheritance of this cold war underground world is really alive today in them yeah in many ways well i mean of course you know i mean the um you know the soviet union collapses in 1991 and that led to a massive you know just in general cutback and defense spending and that type of thing and um specifically with the cia uh i mean it had already been shrink uh shrinking its paramilitary forces um which are in uh what is it i think the special activities division or something to that effect um and i think maybe even within they've got like the special operations group or something which was the you know actual fighters but anyway you know they just don't have the numbers for this kind of stuff that they did during the cold war and then when the global war and terror breaks out you know the cia really had no choice but to you know lean much more heavily on these pmcs for forces for this you know like i kind of alluded to before you know they had always used green berets ex-green berets and what have you uh in a mercenary capacity um but you know typically this was for covert operations stuff that you didn't you know want the public to know about whereas i mean now you know you're starting to use mercenary forces in, you know, direct avert roles in Afghanistan and Iraq and, you know, cases because there's just really nobody else, you know, that you can turn to essentially. Um, yeah, I mean, just the general lack of resources in that capacity and these companies were able. And of course, you know, that was kind of, I think, what the ideal had already been. You know, you laid off all of these, you know, these paramilitary figures, uh, you know, at the aftermath of the Cold War, and they all start, you know, setting up these companies and what have you, because, you know, it was probably aware at some point there was going to be a need for these services. Um, right. Certainly the American empire is not going to just end with the end of the Cold War, obviously. So, um, yeah, and then really the global war on terror provided a pretext for all of this to go into motion to make the, you know, these companies, which had been fairly marginal in the 90s, and to just, you know, bohemus uh going into the 21st century who are some of the characters or what are some of the connections that that connect that cold war underground world to these modern pmcs some of the figures and like prince i guess is the is the main one uh but uh what are who are some of the 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 in-between connections and and how does it how, how do these companies really actually tie back into that world uh well, I mean, in the British angle, you can see it a lot more clearly when you look at a guy like David Sterling, who had set up KAS right. International, and then from there, it kind of goes into guys like Simon Mann, 
and um, Tony Buckingham, and then from there into guys like Tim Spicer, uh, who was the guy who had set up first uh, Sandline International, um, and then Aegis, uh, which had really become the you know most significant private military company operating in uh, Iraq at the height of the conflict there. In fact, they were um, the company that was basically hired to coordinate all of the other private military companies in you know the entire conflict essentially. And um, I know one of Spicer's. Gosh, I can't remember the guy's name now off the top of my head, but one of the guys who had helped him um, procure the contract had been, you know, a veteran of um, uh, the French Foreign Legion, you know, going back uh, to the late 50s, early 60s. And um, uh, the Legion was another popular destination for former SS men in the aftermath of the Second World War, because historically uh, the French Foreign Legion is... It's attracted a lot of disreputable types over the years. Of course, for many, many years, pretty much anybody, you know, regardless of whether you were a convicted murderer or something like that, could go into the French Foreign Legion. You could get a new identity. And then when you got out, you were basically in the free and clear. Um, So, yes, in the aftermath of the Second World War, a lot of SS men found this to be very appealing, uh, so that if for no other reason, they would avoid charges of war crimes. And uh, the French, their military forces were utterly decimated, so they, you know, were willing to look the other way to bring in a couple of SS men, well, actually, a lot of SS men into the legions. But anyway, this guy had, you know, he was an active in the uh, the French Foreign Legion with these former Nazis. He got to know all of these OS, OAS guys, uh, the secret army organization, who had revolted against de Gaulle in the early 60s. So, you know, I mean, just this one individual alone, whose name escapes me, was tied into this just whole kind of black underground. He ends up, you know, lobbying for Spicer, who was in many ways another creation of this kind of Cold War nexus as well, to basically be the guy who takes over overseeing the private military industry in Iraq. And then, you know, this is all kind of unfolding against the backdrop of Spicer meeting with um, Le Cirque Howe in, uh, I believe it was 2003 or something like that. You know, I mean, this is another just pinnacle Cold War anti-communist organization that had rechristened itself in the global war on terror. Uh, Spicer meets with these guys, and about a year later, he's given this enormous contract by the U.S. government to manage the private military industry in Iraq. So, I mean, it's definitely, in a very real sense, a continuation of these covert politics that had their origins in the Cold War. Well, yeah, I mean, it seems like, like I was telling Adam earlier, as far as the connections between the modern day and these characters, um, it's it's definitely enough that like a a local cop on a, in an anti-gang task force would be able to round people up as associated. You know, it's like, it's, it's just wild. It seems like there is a, there is a unbroken chain uh, to this world and, and our, our current world. And are some of these, these ideologues now that we have too, do they feel like, like they're a part of of this chain and that they're inheriting this, like an ideologue, like a Steve Bannon or something. You know, I mean, if you get inspiration, or, or Eric Prince or Betsy yeah, Ross, yeah. Or, you know, any of them, yeah. Well, I mean, I you know, in a lot of ways, I think a guy like Prince actually sees himself as uh, you know at the forefront of really a new ruling class or at least a new ruling elite within the national security state. Um, Of course, that's something else that I really got into in the book was just the, you know, how much Rumsfeld had really uh, affected a true revolution in uh, the national security state. 
uh, as the Secretary of Defense. And, you know, that really went into just the whole nature of covert operations. I mean, pretty much throughout the Cold War uh, and up through the 90s, the CIA had just a total monopoly on covert operations. Um, you know, the military was involved, but again, in a support role. You know, they provided the grunts to actually go out and do the fighting, but the CIA oversaw everything ultimately. But um, under Rumsfeld, you really saw the rise of the Joint Special Operations Command, which is um, essentially the governing body for the elite counterinsurgency and counterterrorist forces in the U.S. military. This is your Delta Force, your SEAL Team 6, the Night Stalkers, and um, occasionally the Army Rangers and some of the other elite groups. But, um, you know, now suddenly JSOC is basically directing covert operations by itself without the CIA having any real involvement. And I mean, they already had a very elite intelligence unit uh, detached to it, which was called the activity, but now they started getting, you know, on the ground, uh, spooks, human resources, that type of thing. And it became almost one-stop shopping in a very real sense. Uh, I mean, it's almost carrying out the, you know, what historically would have been the dominion or the direct right of plans in the CIA. Uh, and you can see just, you know, the profound influences it's had in places like Yemen or Somalia now, where, for years, JSOC has pretty much been fighting a war, you know, almost single-handedly in these countries against the various, you know, guerrilla forces there and what have you. Um, you know, I mean, it has the paramilitary operators, the, you know, the intelligence assets, and even a lot of cases, the Psy war officers to carry out all of this without any real involvement from the CIA at all. And that really, I think, has led to a tremendous loss of power uh, from the CIA in the 21st century within the, uh, you know, the national security state. Yeah, so it's basically, in a sense, that what they want to do is privatize national security. Yeah, well, I mean, going further from like a mercenary army to just privatizing all of our national security and not being in the, in, in other words, there's no national interest. Yeah. I mean, you know, I definitely think that that's, you know, kind of what we're heading towards with, you know, Eric Prince, you know, asking to be what with the vice Roy or something like that of Afghanistan. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, now it's like instead of just, you know, the CIA or even JSOC hiring Blackwater or something like that to carry out operations in, you know, Afghanistan, it's like, you know, we're not even going to have that, you know, degree of government involvement. We're just going to hire, was it Frontier Services Limited? And they're just going to run, you know, our, you know, everything in Afghanistan for us, basically. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's really incredible. And um, yeah, it just sort of, I think it's just kind of like, you, you know, I was kind of getting to earlier, you know, you can see going into the global war on terror. I mean, Rumsfeld essentially felt that the, the CIA had gone soft, um, you know, and of course it didn't even have the paramilitary capability to do what he wanted it to in the first place. It had to get the PMCs to do that. JSOC, you know, takes over doing this and in the process, it grooms just, you know, a host and hosts of potential recruits for these private military companies, especially after now almost two decades of, uh, you know, using it, JSOC heavily in heavy, heavy combat in the Middle East. And now, you know, you've got ample recruits. These companies are just loaded with money. They've formed a bizarre alliance with, you know, venture capitalists and all this other stuff. Uh, now, I mean, yeah, you could argue that, you know, we've even moved beyond JSOC. We're ready to just take everything full-blown private. 
Right. There's, there's, there seems to be in a way, and I think that you kind of cover this in the book that there's almost like, like a kind of a new kind of medievalism or a new kind of feudalism that's going on here where you have basically now everything is like in the private interest. What is, what is the end game here with this? I mean, increasingly, it just looks like a lot of the the kind of time-honored conspiracy theories, if you will, about like the the UN one world government and what have you were, I mean, a kind of head fake, if you will. I mean, you know, you really could kind of see almost the apex of that going back to, you know, 1991. Um you know, the European Union emerges, you've still got the Soviet Union kind of going on, you know, and then you've got the United States. I mean, already you're sort of seeing the world being organized into these transnational bodies and so on and so forth. Um, You've got a UN peacekeeping force effectively being deployed to Iraq or, you know, ancient Babylon, if you will. Um, And then just everything kind of starts to fall apart. The Soviet Union falls apart. It splits into dozens of new states or, you know, states now reemerging with independence and so forth. Uh, You know, going into the 21st century, the EU starts to collapse. The UK's left. I mean, I definitely think there's a strong chance that uh, the continental European Union will not survive this whole COVID thing. And um, it seems like with the ratcheting up of tensions against China, there's... uh, you know, I think there's a very real possibility that one of our major objectives behind all of this is to get China to break up. So, you know, I kind of think the end game ultimately, you know, and it might well even, you know, go into the United States itself as well with, uh, you know, breaking up the union here too. But I think the end game is ultimately to uh, reduce a lot of the world into these nation states that are essentially inferior to multinational corporations you know they just don't have the resources in terms of financially you know to compete with a lot of the multinationals and if you you know harness them to these private military companies they're not going to have the security forces to counter them either and the the companies don't have to capture a nation state no i mean they just you know uh they just need to be contracted by it essentially uh you know and you've got your influence in there yeah so, I mean, it's just, it's really, you know, incredible what we're witnessing now with all of this. Um, you know, it really is a kind of uh, neo-medievalism or neo-feudalism, if you will, that I think is what we're seeing to starting to emerge in uh, the 21st century. Yeah, very much so. Uh, it's, I mean, how is this like today, now, at this moment, because, you know, I, I wanted to kind of ask you, get your thoughts on this. I mean, you know, what we're seeing right now with the coronavirus and all this and the response to it has been essentially almost like, OK, the states are going to take care of this. You know, the federal government's not going to going to do some things, but the states have got to do some other things. We're in a situation here in Tennessee where basically you know, the governor has talked about, you know, hey, we're going to open up the state at the end of this month in April. And but the four largest cities are going to say, well, we're going to take our own pace. So there seems to be like this really decentralization going on. And it seems when I read when I read this book that I'm almost just like, you know, that this seems to be like this is like almost part of the plan almost is to like de- to kind of like decentralize. And what do you think is do you think that there is a, that there is something to that? 
Yeah, I mean, I definitely think so. And then, of course, I mean, on top of that, I mean, you kind of see Trump tweeting out these, uh, was it open up, um, you know, Virginia or was it liberate Virginia? Liberate, or whatever. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, on top of all that, I mean, it definitely seems like he's pushing his followers, you know, towards this direction. And I mean, that gets into some really you know, murky stuff, because, I mean, certainly, you know, Europe wasn't the only um, part of the world that had these uh, these stay-behind networks. Um, certainly, uh, they did exist here and do still exist, and um, a lot of them really were comprised of these uh, militia groups and what have you, and you see this kind of continuing to this day with organizations like the Oath Keepers, and, you know, what is the composition of this group? Well, it's almost entirely former military men and police officers. Uh, so, yeah, you've basically got, you know, these kind of private militias and this type of thing that, you know, you can further whip into a frenzy uh, to cause destabilization in these areas, and, um, you know, if we're kind of following the trajectory that Katrina established, you know, when uh, the security forces, the local police and whatever, you become overwhelmed well, you know, who's going to be called in to handle this? Well, probably a PMC, most likely, you know. I mean, that was what we saw happen in Katrina over a decade ago. And uh, with how That's things true. have advanced, you know, yeah. since then, you know, I think you could see it on a much larger scale now. Um, you know, I mean, it's rather you know, Machiavellian in a lot of ways. I mean, you kind of use these... Uh, you know, these neo-fascist, you know, militia-type groups, uh, which ironically, I mean, the coordinating body for all this is a group that we talked about in the last episode, uh, the Sovereign Order of St. John. I know Dr. Future's written a lot about the the current Protestant incarnation of that. One of the big guys involved with it is um, General William uh, Jerry Boykin. Uh, you know, he was the former head of Joint Special Operations Command. Uh, I'm sure he probably knows a lot of these you know, these guys and tied up in the PMCs and all this racket. Of course, he was a big Trump supporter. I'm guessing in this context, he probably got to know Eric Prince. Uh, I'm pretty sure he does know Keith Kellogg, who's another big General Keith Kellogg, who's another big Trump backer. He's been a big part of uh, Trump's national security team since the beginning. So, you know, you got Jerry Boykin over here, who's kind of organizing the Christian right into all these militias and what have you. Uh, you know, you call on these guys to cause up a little trouble and uh, then you turn around and get some of Boykin's buddies like Eric Prince, potentially, or Keith Kellogg and some of their Michael Flynn, you know, some of these guys to uh, start launching their uh, or bring in their own private security companies to help quell the uh, disturbances that Boykin's buddies have been putting up. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be pretty incredible, I think, what we're going to see in the coming months, unfortunately. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, th it, it just it just really mirrored to me what I was reading to what I'm seeing in the news, and it just kind of it it's, it it starts to make sense when you put it in the context of these these mercenary private military company groups trying to really essentially take over. Um, so has that been something that within the Trump administration that has been the huge push that that that's really the big struggle right now when you know Trump talks about the deep state what he's really doing is just giving it over to another kind of deep state entity we, essentially we 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's just, it, it's nonsense to argue that Trump is, you know, at war with the deep state. I mean, he's a part of the bloody deep state. I mean, he was the CEO of Resorts International, for pity's sake. I mean, you know, I've written about this in my blog, but I mean, that just, it was a gaming company that was just mobbed up to the gills. And on top of that, it had its own private intelligence company, Intertel, which was staffed heavily by, you know, NSA and CIA and military and FBI intelligence veterans. So Trump did not, you know, become the CEO of this entity by being an outsider. Um, right. You know, he's basically just, you know, like I kind of alluded to before, I think he is not at war with the deep state, but he's uh, at war with an aging version of the deep state, and he is receiving support from an emerging faction, the faction kind of oriented around these private military companies and so forth. And would you see that some of his foreign policy, um, the less, you know, the more, the more, uh, the focus on pulling back from some of these foreign entangle entanglements aren't necessarily a true isolationism or not wanting to be involved in these things, but is more of uh, giving these places over to the private military contractors? Yeah, I mean, I, I think very much so. You know, I mean, I think uh, and I mean, it just kind of goes, I think, in general with, you know, what Trump was kind of put in there to do. And in my opinion, there were two fundamental objectives of the Trump presidency. One was to dismantle the Bretton Woods system that's, uh, you know, essentially defined the global economic order since the end of World War Two, which he's doing with these, you know, these uh, tariffs and things like that. And then to also reorient uh, American foreign policy towards containment of China. I mean, really, for the last, you know, two decades, three decades or so, really since the end of the Cold War, most of our national or, you know, foreign policy initiatives have been centered in uh, the global south and securing resources in these impoverished third world countries and what have you. And um, like you're kind of saying, you know, I think that, you know, going forward is going to be turned over to these private military companies they're going to do the work, you know, that kind of work for us so that we can put, you know, the bulk of our official forces in the Pentagon and so forth in a direction towards China and thus, you know, free them up for this, you know, ultimate containment of China. It's enough to make your head spin Yeah, <laughs> on, on, on all this. But yeah, once you put it in the proper context, I think it all makes sense. No, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's at least it's the most compelling explanation I've found uh, thus far. Um, certainly a little, I think, more compelling than a, a world world government over the World Health Organization anyway. Yeah. <laughs> let's uh, let's talk a little bit in the time we have left. I want to talk a little bit about kind of like the, the occult uh, roots of some of this, and especially Julius Evola. Um, who's really come and had a kind of resurgence with uh, a lot of what we would call the alt-right and even people from the Trump administration. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, also going into, uh, you know, Russia, too, with uh, yeah. Dugan and what have you as well. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, well, you know, Evoli was probably one of the two big influences on the doctrine of the strategy of tension, along with, uh, you know, the French concept of the guerre revolutionaire. But, um, you know, Evola, I mean, when you look at a lot of the the prominent, you know, neo-fascist terrorists, I mean, almost all of them were followers of Julius Evola at one time or other. I mean, certainly some of them broke after a time frame, but um, at some point they had almost all respected his philosophy. Um, and then, of course, you had the major um, 
kind of neo-fascist organization, uh, the New Order. Uh, the guy who headed that was just a fanatical supporter of Joseph Volai, and this was really the the principal militant organization that had been used uh, for the Gladio-type terrorism in Italy for many years. I mean, the guys that were following him were especially militant, and um, when you kind of got into this, uh, this neo-fascist dysphoria, I mean, certainly I think his ideology got spread even further going into the global south. Um, of course, in Chile, you had, uh, what was his name, Soriano, I believe, Miguel Soriano, if I'm not mistaken, who uh, uh, prominent Chilean occultist, who was also a big supporter of Joseph Oli there and what have you. Um, and then just in general, you know, with the, the Landig group in um, Austria, uh, and the head of this, William Landig, uh, you know, he was tied into all this with the World Anti-Communist League. He was a representative uh, for Wackel in Austria. But um, Landig was the guy who had really spread the the notion of the Black Sun and the Lost Battalion and all these other staples that had become so big in, you know, uh, esoteric Nazism and what have you in the late 20th and early 21st century. Um, and Landig was a big, big follower of Evoli. And um, ironically, both of them were actually based out of Salzburg uh, in the waning days of the Second World War. So it would not be surprising uh, if they had known one another and there might have been something deliberate about what Landig was trying to spread. Of course, you know, Evoli's ideology was very much an elite ideology. It was only intended for an initiated elite. But Landig was able to come up with something that was more populist that, I mean, could, you know, reach the common masses, uh, the great unwashed masses, probably in the perspective of uh, Evoli. But, um, you know, what he was doing was almost akin to what Gardner had been doing with Wicca in terms of Thelema or something to that effect. Uh, though certainly Crowley had always intended Thelema to be much more of a popular ideology than uh, Evoli had really intended for his own system, certainly. Right. Can you give just a kind of a background for people who may not be familiar with who Evola was and what his uh, official capacities were for the uh, Third Reich at the end of the war? Well, he was an Italian. Um, obviously, he was a prominent occultist and also a philosopher. Um, he had really cut his mystical teeth at the Ur group uh, during the 1920s. Um, <clears throat> and they were, of course, quite obsessed with Mithraism and so forth. Um, of course, Evoli really, uh, a lot of his system was based on the caste system of the Hindus, but um, in his cosmology, the Brahmin caste, the priest caste, uh, was subservient to the warrior caste. Uh, and his kind of idealized form of government, if you will, essentially society would have been governed by you know, an initiated warrior monk type setup. I mean, almost a kind of Jedi order, if you will, though certainly I suppose from most people's perspective, they would have been more of a Sith order, but um, something along <laughs> those lines effectively um, during the, you know, he had, of course, flirted with Nazism and fascism, um, though he had ended up becoming uh, a critic of both ideologies. And uh, that was essentially because he thought that Hitler and Mussolini didn't go far enough with it. There was too <laughs> much um, pandering to the trade unions and Christianity and that type of thing. Um, but uh, it had been a noble ideal that had been uh, perverted by populism or something to that effect. Um, nonetheless, though, they never moved against Evola, no matter how much he criticized either regime. Mm. And by uh, war's end, he had been brought into the SD, which was um, the principal in intelligence service for the SS. 
And there's a lot of mystery as to what exactly he was doing at the end of the war. Evoli himself claimed that he was essentially working on a history of secret societies, which just does not make you know any sense when you've literally got the Red Army um, encircling Germany to just you know put the resources for this guy to write a book at this point in time. Uh, the great Kevin Coogan, who uh, sadly is no longer with us anymore, uh, had suggested that he was essentially being used to found a new kind of pan-European ideology that could be used to support Nazism in the post-war years. You know, certainly I think that's a compelling argument. And, um, you know, I think there's a possibility that was what Landig was trying to do. Of course, as I had alluded to before, Landig, who, um, and he was also in the SD as well, but in the um, the inland version of the SD, which was the, it was the one that essentially handled uh, domestic affairs. Evola was probably in the foreign one, but, um, you know, both of these guys are stationed at Salzburg at the end of the war. Landig did so much to bring Evola's ideology to kind of a popular conception of it that the, you know, masses could consume. So, uh, you know, you have to kind of wonder, was he, you know, was he paying out what Coogan had suggested that he was basically crafting a post-war fascist ideology that would be more inclusive to Europeans on the whole instead of just, you know, emphasizing Germanness. Uh, <laughs> I think there's a great possibility of that and that Landig had been used to, you know, essentially craft a popular conception of this. While Evola, you know, he continued to inspire elites, uh, which he's still doing with people like Dugan and Bannon and all these other wonderful people. <laughs> Well, I mean, this, this, uh, I gotta tell you, um, Steven, this has been fascinating. I mean, there's so much that we have covered in this and yeah, there's like so much that is left in this book. Um, yeah, and yeah. the, the book, the book is a wild ride and there's so many connections and so many things that will make your head spin, but you do a really good job of keeping everything together. Uh, can you tell people where they can find the book and also find your blog and also possibly get in touch with you if they need to? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you can always uh, get in touch with me with my blog uh, under the contact um, thing there. Um, but the blog is Visupview. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W dot blogspot dot com. Uh, you can get the book Strange Tales of the Parapolitical, Post-War Nazis, Mercenaries, and Other Secret History at Amazon. And you can also get the PDF version uh, from my website and also at the official store for my podcast. Uh, the link or the address for that is The Farm Podcast. That's all one word, The Farm Podcast dot star, <clears throat> excuse me, dot store backslash. And you can get the PDF version there. And right now we actually have a uh, pandemic special, if you will, going on <laughs> where you get uh, both Strange Tales of the Parapolitical and Contact Them or Us, which was the prior book written by my co-author with this, Frank Zero, and uh, our good friend Jeremy Knight, who's also a part of the collective. Uh, Jeremy's a great guy. He does a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff for us. But um, certainly the cost of these two books and the PDF is cheaper than a physical copy would be. And, um, selfishly, we also don't have to split the proceeds with Amazon. So that's very nice as well. Hey. Uh, so yeah, definitely think about that. Uh, you know, and you can also find a link to get the PDF, uh, at my website as well. And, uh, if you're not sick of hearing me talk, uh, by the end of this interview, you can also check out my podcast. Uh, that is the farm podcast. 
com. Like I said, that's all one word. So yeah, you know, definitely check us out. Uh, we cover parapolitics, synchro mysticism, all kinds of other crazy stuff. We got people like Jason Horsley, Alan Greenfield, Chris Knowles, and what have you uh, appearing. So uh, yeah, you know, if you like what you've heard here, definitely check us out there. And uh, of course, the blog. And uh, yeah, consider picking up a copy of the book as well. Did you have fun with Greenfield? Yes, I did. I did. Uh, I'm definitely looking forward to having him back at some point. Uh, but good Lord, that man does love to hear himself talk. <laughs> so, I mean, he is an interesting guy. So, you know, it works. It wouldn't necessarily work for everybody, but it does work with Alan. Um, you know, he is a great guy, you know, so and he's got definitely got some very interesting stories, but uh, a lot of them, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, for, for sure. Yeah, he's great. We just did a two parter with him not that long ago. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Stephen Recluse. Uh, stay on the line for us. Uh, we're going to close out this section. And guys, we will be back to close out the show on Conspiranormal. I want to leave some of that in. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll edit it appropriately. Yeah. But it's like, that was a good episode, man. I was really, really impressed by it. What were some of your thoughts on uh, on that? We'll just go I mean, straight in there doing our outro. Wow. Yeah, we've been, you know, we've been following his blog for a long time. So, and we, you know, had him on two years ago. Um, when we were talking about the Knights of Malta stuff that was happening in tandem with Dr. Future's research. So that was really cool. And I, I just started uh, following his blog. I haven't been as up to date with it as I like to be. But if you've been following his blog, just the way he has summarized, you know, so much of what he's been blogging about into this book, it's almost like an encyclopedia, you know, of of post-World War II, of the underbelly of the Cold War. And like I was telling him, you know, we, all the stuff is in the popular consciousness about Paperclip and the rocket program and Nazis hiding out in South America. But when you put that many people together in one place and show their relationships, um, it's crazy, man. It just really makes you think. Yeah, it does indeed. What's the lasting... What's the lasting impact? And what's the lasting impact of everything that happened in the Cold War and these people we are friends with going to be for the future? Yeah. Right. Right. There's just like you said, there's this there's this long line that you could like take directly from the Nazis, the fascists, and just bring it down to today through some of these groups. And then you've even got, you know. Uh, you could say, okay, that these private military companies are like fascists or whatever they are, but also at the same time, they kind of hark back to things that are even further back than that, because as we were talking about with Recluse, that there's this kind of a certain kind of almost that's going on. And, you know, I guess maybe that is harkening back to some kind of <laughs> sort of fascism in and of itself. But uh, one interesting thing that I 
had studied before uh, I read this book was Otto Scorzani and the Paladin Group. Um, yes. And that's that's something that I really did not know about a lot till I started really looking into it. And Paladin Group was an interesting, interesting group. And they were very much one of these private military companies or private intelligence companies um, in the sense that basically here you had this like hardcore Nazi, right? This Scorzani was responsible for uh, when Mussolini was kicked out of power he and he was in prison scorzani you know brought him out of prison uh yeah true true believers not just just scientists yeah yeah commando raid and then also in the battle of the bulge he would have uh ss guys dress up like american soldiers to cause havoc behind the lines um speaking english and american accents that kind of stuff and but the Paladin Group after the war was something that he started, I think, about probably in like the 50s or 60s. And they were mostly based in Franco Spain, which was very sympathetic right. to like the, a lot of the fascist cause. And she talks about a lot of these launching pads. Like you had these safe zones for all these people to congregate, to plan right. for all their activities across the world. You know, first, I guess you had Franco Spain, and then Chile really became. The yeah. next place. Portugal would have been another place too that had yeah. a quasi this kind of weird kind of quasi fascist government. Uh, you know, the well, even before Chile, you would have had Peron and Argentina. Uh that was very sympathetic. And, you know, Argentina had so much sympathy for the Nazi cause. Brazil to a certain extent. We talked a little bit about that with Tom back in our last Tom and Ginny episode. But uh the one thing about that's interesting about the Paladin group was that they basically sold themselves off for the highest bidder because you had one of the splinter groups of the Palestinian Liberation Organization were actually a communist organization. Mm-hmm. And they actually hired Scorzani's group for some things. So here's Scorzani, supposedly rabid anti-communist, right, Nazi, and he's working for... Um, he's working for this communist Palestinian group. And even more controversial than that is the reports that the Mossad actually hired Scorzani for, to kill these German rocket scientists that were working for Nasser in, in Egypt. You know, I mean, can you imagine, can you imagine that? <laughs> I mean, talk about the enemy of my enemy is my friend. I mean, that's crazy to even yeah. think about, even consider. Uh, but that's something that, you know, of course, the Mossad denies that. But there are, there is some proof that that actually did happen. So, yeah, the, uh, that's, that's one that we got a lot of these different, influences in the world man and i mean it's and that's one thing that i talk about a lot when like you know people say well there's this overarching conspiracy and there's this uh 
you know, it's, it's the Illuminati or the Jesuits or whatever that are, you know, this one monolithic or the communists is one monolithic thing. It's not like that. It's more like these different groups that are kind of competing together and you've got several of them. So that's one of the things that, uh, like to go back to a lot to try yeah. to understand this stuff and to really get your head around what is actually going on instead of kind of more these simplistic kind of views or these simplistic kind of viewpoints. Is there anything that you want, kind of wanted to add to that? No, I think you, you hit it on the head, man. I mean, we're just, uh, I really recommend this book if you want kind of a, a big picture yep. and a who's who. And like I said, it's like an encyclopedia of the people and organizations. And, um, you know, I'd like to see like a, a visual model that just you could look at to connect all these people together because it's it's definitely a web. Yeah, no doubt. No and doubt. It has connections to people in power this day. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening. If you want to help us out, Sergio can tell you where to go. You can, on the spot. you can make a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com or you can go to patreon.com slash conspiranormal and become a patron. Uh, we did a patron segment for this one as well about the UFO connection to all this crazy stuff we're talking about. And uh, we got content on there every week. You can get in for as little as $1. So patreon.com slash conspiranormal. Absolutely, guys. Don't forget the that really helps us out. We know these are tough times, but if you can spare a dollar, help us out. Here's some extra content going all the way back to 2016. And don't forget about the YouTube channel, Conspiracy Normal Podcast. That helps us out with subscriptions to that as well. So, all right. We will be back next time, guys, on another fun-filled episode of Conspiracy Normal. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. 
And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to trylifemd.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.